So today is actually the beginning of a new series, and the program series is Sacred Relationships. This week in chapel, we'll have the opportunity to explore important aspects of our life with each other as we address topics of sexuality to singleness to relationships with friends and family. So for Wednesday's chapel in KPH in here, um, we will welcome Megan Brown, the associate professor and assistant chair of the Christian Ministries Department at UNW. Some of you have her in class. Um, among all the courses that she does, Dr. Brown teaches a popular course called Relationships. So some of you might be familiar with that. She'll be bringing a lot of great insight. Um, so please join us back here on Wednesday, if you can, um, to continue this um, program series on sacred relationships. For today, our chapel, um, Rachel Gilson, is actually going to be joining us today. Um, Rachel serves on the leadership team of Theological Development and Culture with Crew, and is the author of the book, Born Again This Way, Coming Out, Coming to Faith, and What Comes Next. She lives in the Boston area with her husband and daughter. So all members of the Northwestern community are actually invited to join Rachel today for a Q&A session after chapel. It'll actually be at 1245 in Naz Great Room from 1245 to 2. If you're able to come, please come out. Um, and it'll be a session for you to ask questions, for you to engage with our speaker um, after the chapel session. And so you're welcome to come to that. And SDC will be offered for that session. So if you don't have class, you're welcome to come. Um, but for now, if you guys want to join me in a warm Northwestern welcome to Rachel as she comes to the stage. Thanks. You know, I was, I was scared to accept an invitation to Minnesota in February because I had previously come to Minnesota in February before, which is where I learned that the inside of your nose can freeze. Um, but this has been a lot nicer. This has been, this is almost a fake spring so far. Uh, chapel's also a kind of funny space for me to be in sometimes because, maybe like some of you, I didn't grow up in a Christian household. Like, I just wasn't used to those types of rhythms. So I grew up in Southern California in a very rural area. Like, my high school had a working farm and a place where you could tie up your horse. Um, so it was actually kind of weird that I didn't grow up in a church-going family, because a lot of people around me were church-goers. By the time I got to high school, I really did want to know what was true. I wanted to know what was real. And since there were a lot of people around me who went to church, I thought, well, I should ask them. Like, maybe they'll have some opinions for me about who God is or what this is. Um, and I just wasn't really impressed by the answers I got. Now, granted, I was like asking a bunch of 14-year-olds some of the biggest questions in the world, but I thought, maybe this just isn't really it. And over time, I, I thought, no, I actually believe in, in no God at all. I think the only thing that exists is this. But more than that, I started viewing the Christians around me basically as a bunch of idiots that couldn't think for themselves, you know, people who needed a crutch. And I was like, oh, that's fine for you, but I'm so grown up, I'm so adult here. The other thing that happened in high school that put me off from Christianity was that I realized that the way that my female friends felt about other young men 
was actually how I felt about young women. Now, to give you some context, because we're now in 2023, this was 2001. This was back when Will and Grace was still edgy, not nostalgic. You know, this was back when Laura Dern got kicked off of TV for like 10 years because she kissed Ellen on a TV show. It was like a different, it was a little bit different of a world. And I'd had some relationships with guys because I enjoy the company of men, but whenever I tried to have romantic or sexual contact with them, it was always like, ugh, this doesn't, this just seems a little off. And you might be thinking, well, your mistake was hooking up with teenage boys, and you're not wrong. <laughs> but when I started having sexual and romantic relationships with young women, I was like, oh, no, this is, this is actually where I belong. And even though it was you know, before any state had legalized same-sex marriage, I thought, no, the future is with me. But it also meant by the time I graduated high school, I not only thought Christians were stupid, but I thought Christians were bigots. Even though I had never been mistreated by a Christian or by a church group for my sexuality, I just kind of knew from the air that Christians were not for me. So I was like, yeah, I don't want anything to do with y'all. So like I said, I grew up in Southern California and I got tricked into going to college in New England. Uh, I went to Yale, which is in Connecticut, the most boring of the New England states. But the thing is, all the promotional material shows you what Yale looks like in October. Like, oh, soft light and red trees. It looks like this most of the time, actually. It's like a nasty, you know, snow on the ground. Disgusting trick, but I didn't know that. So I got, to, I got to Yale and I had really set my life on these two pillars. One, I thought I was intellectually awesome. Uh, and two, the girl I was dating at the time, I was just fully obsessed with. And so I thought, my life is set. I've got these two pillars. And God in his kindness basically like wrapped some chains around those two pillars, tied them to his pickup truck, and pulled them out from underneath me. Uh, so one, it turns out if you go to a mediocre public high school in the middle of nowhere, you will probably not be the most impressive person at a world-class university. Like, I showed up at Yale and immediately was like, I am the stupidest person here. It was very obvious. All four years, I was like, I, who are you people even? So that pillar just crumbled into a heap. And then the other pillar, well, the girl I was dating at the time, she was taking a year off school, skiing in Tahoe, rich family, right? Uh, and she left me for this guy. I mean, that's already painful, right, to be left for somebody else. But he hadn't even graduated high school. Not only that, he lived in a van. Not only that, the van didn't, like, start properly. Like, you had to, like, physically move it to get the engine to engage. That's just embarrassing. Nobody wants to be left for that guy. You know what I mean? It's just bad news. I know. It was so sad. <laughs> Um, I had been kicked out of my house, another story for a different time, and they, they make you leave during Christmas break, theoretically to clean your room, and when you came back, it was never clean, but whatever. So I spent Christmas morning with my now ex-girlfriend. I remember Christmas morning, I was reading Don Quixote on a futon, and I could hear her having sex with her new boyfriend in the other room, and I was like, this is the worst Christmas ever, which it was. And I didn't know what to do, so I went back to Yale, and I was like, what am I what am I even going to do with myself? I was basically having an identity crisis. So it was sort of like, well, maybe I should write for the school newspaper. Except I wasn't smart enough to write for the school newspaper. And so I was like, oh, well, maybe I should go to the gym more. And then I remembered that I'm super lazy. And so I just like didn't even know what to do with myself. And it never occurred to me like, oh, I should turn to Jesus because I didn't believe in Jesus. That just wasn't respectable. But really early in the spring semester, I mean, it wasn't spring till May, but whatever. 
We had this lecture, it was on Rene Descartes. He's the old, dead French guy who invented the phrase, I think, therefore I am. Maybe heard of it. And from that phrase, he had developed this whole proof for the existence of God. And I remember sitting in the audience thinking, that's kind of a stupid proof for the existence of God. But I was really bothered by it because I had kind of prided myself on knowing the more common proofs for God's existence and being able to shoot them down. And I was like, oh, what if I don't know some of them? And, and also I was maybe a little bit interested, which made me feel kind of skeeved out. Uh, but I'm, I'm what's called an elder millennial, so um, I decided I should Google it. I went back to my room. So this was 2004, so some of you weren't born, so you don't remember. Laptops used to have lids like this thick, and it took all your upper body strength to get them open, inexplicably. You couldn't bring them anywhere, but I would jam that thing open and just fire in religious search terms about God and spiritual stuff. And you know when you follow hyperlinks for hours, you're like, how did I even end up reading about the history of the Easter Bunny? I was looking up the Irish potato famine, you know? but you just, you end up in crazy places. And I just kept coming back to reading about the person of Jesus. Now, in my mind, Jesus had been like a caricature, like George W. Bush wrapped in a toga or something, like just a silly, ridiculous image. But when I was reading about Jesus, I was like, this character seems different than I thought. He, he seems tender and compassionate in certain ways, but my favorite stories would be when his obvious opponents would come up to him to try to trick him and he would just shut them down, which probably tells you more about my personality than anything, that those were my favorites. But even when I was interested in him as a character, I was like, I can't be interested in Jesus. Like, I'm a self-respecting atheist who wants to marry a woman. Like, this is not, this is never gonna fly. The only two people I knew at Yale who identified as Christians were these two young women who were dating each other. And one of them was training to be a Lutheran minister. So I thought, well, they must know something I don't know because they don't see this as incompatible. So, and yes, I met them in the marching band because I've never been cool. So I went to them <laughs> and I was like, okay, so how do y'all make this, how do y'all make this work? Because to me, it seems incompatible. And they were like, oh yeah, it's all been a big misunderstanding. The Bible actually affirms monogamous gay relationships. And they gave me a packet explaining the correct way to interpret the scriptures. And y'all, I love a packet, so I was excited. So I took that back to my room I was ripping through it, I'm like, gosh, this information is really compelling. But I was also training to be a history major, and so I thought, well, I should like, actually read the document for myself. I mean, it didn't have a Bible, but the internet had it, right? So I was pulling up these texts on my computer screen and comparing them to the packet, and over time I was like, uh-oh, I don't think these interpretations are actually as good as they're claiming to be. Like, these girls are sweet, but uh, I really don't think that's what the Bible says. So I, remember, I felt stupid, I felt duped, I felt angry, and I remember throwing the packet in my little dorm room trash can. It was just so cheap that it fell over. It was like pathetic. <laughs> so a little while after that, I happened to be in the room of a friendly acquaintance. If you've ever seen Gilmore Girls, I was actually Rory Gilmore's year at Yale, and the rooms on the show are actually what our rooms looked like. And so I was um, standing in the doorway of my friend's room, she was putting something in a bag or something, whatever, and she had a bookshelf by her door, and one of my favorite hobbies is to look at people's bookshelves and judge them. So I was checking out her titles, and there was a book on the shelf called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, and I hadn't been raised on Narnia, so I didn't know that that was like a thing, you know, but the title of the book was super interesting to me, and I thought, obviously, you should read a book and not just the internet. 
but I was embarrassed by the fact that I wanted to read the book. I didn't want to admit that to my friends, so I just stole the book. Like, honestly, I had no moral compass. It's like this big, she's not looking, it fits in the bag, no problem. Maybe like a week later, I was in the library reading this book in between class. You know that it's like you don't have enough time to go back to your room, so you're just sitting around between classes doing something. So I definitely was not doing my homework, and I was reading Mere Christianity. And I don't even know what to say. I don't remember what chapter I was in, what paragraph, or anything like this. But in the middle of reading this book, actually, it was 19 years ago yesterday, oddly enough, because it was in February 12th. In the middle of reading this book, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the understanding that God did exist. And not like some generic store brand God or Zeus or something, but the perfect God who made everything and who made me. It was like I could sense God's holiness, even though I didn't know that vocabulary word, and I just felt totally afraid. Because I was arrogant, I was sexually immoral, I was cruel to people, I lied all the time, I was reading a stolen book, like obviously all the chips are in the guilty category. It's not like, oh, what's gonna happen to her? (laughs) And really quickly with that fear, the Spirit also made clear to me that part of the reason Jesus had come was to place himself as a barrier between God's wrath and me. And so that the only way to be safe was to run towards him and not away from him. And I remember thinking, I don't want to become a Christian. Christians are super lame. But at the same time, I was like, well, I can't turn down this deal. This is like a really good deal. Like, I should take it because obviously. And so I didn't have like a nice pastor or anything sitting with me, but I kind of knew I should pray. So I shut my eyes and I was like, okay, fine. I'll become a Christian. And then I went to class. Like, what was I even supposed to do? You know, I didn't know anything. I saw a little sign for um, a Valentine's Day uh, like party for Yale Students for Christ. And I was like, I didn't even know we had a Yale Students for Christ. So I showed up there on Valentine's pretending I was there entirely by accident. And they were like, hi, who are you? And I was like, uh, I just became a Christian two days ago. And they were like, what? So I just, they brought me to freshman prayer. They brought me to freshman Bible study. They took me to weekly meeting. They were like, do you want to go to church? Yeah, I went to church. I learned we gave a lot of hugs. We don't swear or drink to make friends. You know, the music's not that good. Actually, it's gotten a lot better. Um, you know, I just like learned all the things you needed to be like a good, a good evangelical, except the thing was my same-sex attraction wasn't going anywhere. And it's been 19 years. And my attraction to other women hasn't gone anywhere. And so I was just spinning my wheels for the first couple years, being like, what, what in the heck am I supposed to do with this? Because it was really clear to me that God's word said no to same-sex lust and sexual behavior, and I've since learned Greek and Hebrew, and it still says no, fine. So that's never been the problem for me. <laughs> what I didn't understand was why does it say no? Uh, way before the, lay, the phrase love is love was a thing, I was just like, why I don't get it? And I would bargain with God, basically, and be like, if you would just tell me why you say no to this, then I will obey perfectly, which is ridiculous, but you know, you're debating with God. And over time, I felt like God was telling me, hey, if you're only willing to obey me when you both understand and agree, maybe you actually want yourself to be God and not me. And that really cut me. And I want to be clear at this moment, people can abuse that kind of idea, but for me and where I was, 
that was what I needed to hear from the Lord. How in the world was I gonna obey before I understood? How do you obey with something so serious, so tender, so vulnerable, when you don't know why? It really has to come down to relationship. Like if some rando on the street ran up to you and was like, hey, do this thing that sounded sketchy, you'd be like, no, get out of here. I mean, I hope you would, right? But if your very best friend, or if you have a, a family member who you're really close to, who for a long time has demonstrated that they love you and are for you, came to you and was like, hey, I can't explain this right now, but I need you to do this thing, you'd at least be, you'd at least consider it because you know them, you trust them, you understand who they are for you. And I realized the key here is I need to, I need to understand, <laughs> is he good? Is he good enough to trust even in this moment? And I kept getting pressed back again and again into the Garden of Eden, because it's a very strange scenario. God creates the world very good. He cre creates the man and the woman, he puts them in the garden, gives them everything they need, gives them this beautiful vision to go and make the world fruitful. And he only gives them one prohibition. And it doesn't actually make a lot of intuitive sense. Don't eat the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden. I mean, even vegans eat fruit, you know what I mean? You're sort of like, I don't, what's the problem here? We would have understood, if the prohibition had been something more intuitive, like, hey, here guys, here's your one rule, don't murder each other. It'd be like, ah, yes, very good rule, God, because we get it, murder, you know, you'd be killing an image bearer, you wouldn't be able to do your whole job. I mean, if you don't know that intuitively that murder is wrong, like that's the kind of thing you need help for, right? The fact that God made this prohibition something that's not actually intuitively accessible to us demonstrates even in the beginning, even before we fell, that it was by faith we were gonna be saved. Can I trust him even when, it don't, when I don't understand? And the serpent pressed Eve right on that point. He made her use her data to evaluate the fruit, right? Oh, like it, it looked good. I'm not sure why that mattered, but she says it looks good. It's desirous to make her wise. It would be good to eat. She's got all these things. And the only thing she had on the other side was God's word saying, if you do this, you're going to die. And I felt like I was in such the same position when it came to sexuality. Like I had all these reasons why like it would be okay for me to pursue this. Like I could pursue it in a Christian way. You know, it could be righteous. It could be good. And the only thing I had on the other side was God's word saying, if you do this, you're going to die. And I knew the only way I was gonna make a different decision that Eve and Adam did was if I actually pressed into trusting in Jesus. Now, I have to remember, I didn't grow up in a Christian household, so I wasn't exposed that the right answer in Sunday school is always Jesus. I had to learn that in my 20s. But it was really important for me to get pressed into, can I trust him? Can I trust him? And of course, when we recognize the fact that he died for us, we can say like, yeah, okay, you can trust someone who did that. But it's the fact that he came at all. He didn't owe us anything. He could have stayed in heaven and I would have died in my sin and stood in front of him and be like, yeah, you have to condemn me. Like that is, that is the honest and just thing to do. But under no compulsion, he decided to come and live for us. He was born in a backwater in an oppressed um, territory. He grew up poor. By the time he's a grown-up, we don't see his adoptive father Joseph anymore, so he probably had to help his mom raise all his siblings. He wanders around as a homeless man. All of his friends are idiots. And the people who studied their whole lives to recognize him go on a murder campaign that succeeds. 
I don't know if I love anybody enough to go through all of that for, let alone someone who hates me, someone who's my born enemy. But I had to again and again be pressed into, is Jesus for me? And looking at the testimony of not only his death, but also his life and his willingness to come for me, eventually got to the point of saying, yes, he is good, he is for me, I can trust him even when I don't understand. And honestly, if you remember nothing else from this little chapel time, I want to encourage you to trust that Christ is good and he is good for you because you cannot live off of the fumes of anyone else's conviction. It has to be real for you. And when we start to get to a place, whether it's with sexuality or anything that's ethically difficult, some word of God that feels hard, we're gonna be tempted to view that word in abstraction from who he is and sit in judgment over it instead of recognizing that word comes from him. And so it has to be understood in the context of his character. Now, if the only place I had ever gotten to is, well, Jesus is good and I can trust him even though I don't understand, I, I honestly think that would have been okay. I think, that, I think that would have been all right. But over time, the Lord did help me see a different vision for understanding what the Bible says about sexuality. We're gonna go through this quick. I mean, honestly, you could spend a semester on this, but I wanna, I wanna give you a point of view here. So part of, my di- part of my difficulty was I had been approaching God's words through the lens of no. Like, what does God say no to? And everything he said no to felt arbitrary and cruel. But I knew God's character was not arbitrary or cruel. And so I thought, maybe I'm missing something here. I heard a great story that actually helped me uh, understand this. I've got a buddy named Sam who has a friend who loves hosting. And this friend moved into a new apartment and there had been some stuff left behind. And he found a spoon that was like a busted spoon basically. So it had the handle and it had the circle part, but no actual bowl. Like it was just hollowed out. It was like a rim with a thing. He's like, what the heck is wrong with this spoon? So he's like a basically a prankster, and he was British, and he put it in his sugar bowl so he could watch people panic when they opened up the sugar bowl and saw a spoon that can't lift sugar out and try to put it in their tea, right? And so he would like watch them, and people would open it up and try to get some on the edge and like flick it in, or if there were Americans there, they'd be like, ah, you got this stupid spoon, because we're loud, I guess. (laughs) One day, somebody opened this up, and they pulled the spoon out, and they're like, why do you have an olive spoon in your sugar jar? And he was like, a what the what? So I don't eat olives because they're disgusting. But you know how they're, yes. But you know how they're sold in those like jars of goo? Honestly, should be another signal you shouldn't eat them. Well, if you want to get your nasty olive out of the jar, when you have this spoon, it's perfect because the hole is big enough, the olive can like rest on it and all that disgusting yuckiness drips right off. And then you can stick that sucker in your mouth or whatever you do in your spare time. So if you, if you know the purpose of the spoon, suddenly it makes complete sense. If you're looking at an abstraction, you're like, that's literally the stupidest spoon I've ever seen in my life. But when you know what it's for, even though it's for something very bad, you get it. The design makes sense. And I realized, hey, I need to actually understand what God designed sexuality for that'll help me understand the no's that he's saying. And it turns out if you try to understand what God's yes to sexuality is, you run over and over again into marriage. Like you can't get to what sexuality is for without understanding what marriage is for from Genesis uh, to Revelation. And so I wanna offer to you briefly 
that I think we understand what the yes for sexuality is when we see it in its context of marriage and the fact that marriage has one job. And that there are many, in fact, I'm gonna tell you four good things about sexuality and marriage and just marriage in general that help it do that's one job, that those yeses. Now it'd be really cruel if I just stopped right there and said you all have to come to the Q&A, but I know some of you have class, so we'll do them real quick. So I think the one job of marriage, according to scripture, is that human marriages are designed to be a living, breathing picture of God's relationship with his people. And so that everything that's supposed to be true about marriage is so that it can reflect that gospel picture of God's relationship with his people. So we'll take one good that's true about both sexuality and marriage, like sex in marriage, faithfulness. Human marriages are designed to be faithful until the death of one or either spouse because God's relationship with his people is faithful forever. He is always faithful to us and we were supposed to be faithful to him. Now, we see in scripture, God is always faithful. Especially in the Old Testament, his people are like consistently unfaithful. That's why adultery and idolatry are linked so often. If you want a depressing quiet time this week, read Ezekiel 16, honestly. But then we see in the New Testament, because the work of Christ, he is able to make us, God's people, his bride, able to be faithful. And this is a beautiful picture. And so you do have to, there's a little bit of a pop quiz here. Like in terms of just the good of faithfulness, who has wrecked this good of marriage more, straight people or gay people? Answer, give me an answer. Whisper, straight people, there's just more of you. Yeah, exactly. Like, even if no one was ever gay, straight people would have figured out enough how to dump on the good of faithfulness and blaspheme God's vision for marriage. So sometimes when we talk about same-sex relationships, we, we try to do this thing where we like lump all the badness over here and it's like, have y'all ever met any straight people? Like really, everyone experiences and expresses their sexuality in a way that falls short of what God has commanded. And we see that right out the gate in faithfulness. But there's another good of marriage. You've got faithfulness. We also have um, human marriage is supposed to be the foundation of a brand new family through both adoption and biological family because God's relationship with his people is the site of immense fruitfulness and a brand new family. God loves to talk about us being born again, about us being adopted in God, like there's just everything. Building a family, building a family, building a family. And sexuality is a big piece of that, obviously. Uh, so we've got faithfulness, we've got household building. But there's a third good of sexuality and marriage, which is that um, the relationship between a husband and wife, sexuality happens there because it's supposed to be a place of intimacy and pleasure and joy, where desire is satisfied. Because God's relationship with his people is a place of intimacy and pleasure and joy. And finally, one day where desire will be satisfied, which is also why even if you're unmarried or married and for some reason you're separated from your spouse and you cannot actually act on your sexual desire, sexual desire is not some mean joke that God has played on you. It can be a picture of how much God longs to be with his people and how much we are supposed to long to be with him. We have to remember that the fact that sexuality is so powerful is not an accident. I mean, God could have made the act of reproduction as boring as clipping your toenails if he wanted to. It's not like he looked down and was like, oh no, look what they're doing, I need to regulate that. Like it was, it was obviously God's idea. And it's his idea for a reason, it has power for a reason because it's pointing towards the gospel. But here's what we've gotten different. All, 
all three of those goods are still basically intuitively available to us in our culture. Whether you're inside a church or outside a church, you can basically say marriages, faithfulness, although we're starting to say more like for a time, uh, a place of family, but if you don't like babies, you can have dogs, but definitely great sex forever, right? So we've got this sort of, this picture of marriage. And so, of course, we hit like an aggressive record scratch when we realize, hey, wait a minute, why can't two men do all those things? Why can't two women do all those things? Two men can be faithful to each other until they die. They can start a household, because we've already said adoption's a part of the picture. Surely they can experience sexual pleasure together. Like, what is even the problem? And so we feel this intensely. It feels arbitrary and cruel. And I want to suggest to you that there is a fourth good of marriage um, that Scripture also clearly points to that helps us understand what God says no to because he's saying yes to something. But also, in general, in our culture, we've lost intuitive understanding of this one. It can be the harder one. And this is where we have to have our own moment of like, am I, am I going to listen to God's word or am I going to listen to what society has formed me as? Because every single culture is made up of image bearers. So we get some things right. But every single culture is made up of fallen image bearers. So we get some things wrong. And I think this is one place where our culture has drifted majorly from the Lord. But we see in scripture God's uh, picture that marriage is supposed to be a male-female union is a picture of his relationship with his people because both of them are intimate unions um, across diversity, non-interchangeable parties that come together because of the work of Christ. Non-interchangeable parties. And it's interesting in scripture that we always see uh, the husband identified, you know, he's supposed to represent, be a picture of God, and the wife is supposed to be a picture of God's people. And you could say, well, that's just patriarchy, you know? Uh, God, uh, the old school people wouldn't feel comfortable using female language for God. It's too, except you just like read the Bible and it turns out God talks about like nursing Jacob at his breasts or carrying Israel in his womb, which I don't know about you, sounds pretty female to me. Because God doesn't have a gender because he doesn't have a body. So um, mother love is a beautiful picture of the gospel. So of course God can use that language to talk about his own love for his people. So we know that when he's using husband language, it's not some patriarchy thing. He's, he's just trying to communicate something very clearly from Genesis to Revelation. We see it especially in Ephesians 5. And so we've got all four of these goods of marriage that are represented to us that these things need to be true as far as possible so that marriage can do its job of displaying God's picture of his relationship with his people to the world. It helps us see that if a marriage is male-female, it doesn't make it automatically holy. You can have a marriage that fits that fourth good but just so trashes the other three that it is clearly not doing its job. It also helps us understand why, I mean, I think probably many of us have in our lives, we know gay couples who actually seem to be doing good on the other three but at the same time, their marriage still falls short of what God has said marriage is supposed to be and do. And it points us again to the fact that we all need God's forgiveness. We all need his grace to follow him. And this was such a helpful revelation for me because it allowed me to see marriage as this beautiful gospel picture. Um, but also in the New Testament, singleness is a beautiful gospel picture. Honestly, if you read church history, which I know you all do in your spare time, the first couple hundred years of church history, it's like, 
um, virginity and singleness was the varsity team and marriage was JV. Like they were reading their New Testaments really seriously because they saw marriage as this beautiful little picture of the gospel on the earth, but a single life for the sake of Christ is saying in its best form, I see that marriage is good, but that's having like a little toy Tesla and you know eventually you're gonna get the real one. You're saying like, listen, um, these are little pictures of a big marriage that I am going to be a part of. And if you stay single for the sake of Christ, you're basically saying, I'm betting my life on the resurrection, that it is real and good. And both of these can be good pictures of what God is doing because in the new heavens and the new earth, we're all single and we're all married. Each of us are single. Jesus says there's no marriage in heaven. But also we're all part of the bride of Christ. And gentlemen, if that makes you uncomfortable, you just remember we women are also all sons of God. So there's, there's some blurring there. It's all okay. It's the categories. And this helped me so much because it helped me understand God by his spirit will give me exactly what I need to live in either faithful Christian marriage or faithful Christian singleness. Whether I'm attracted to men or women or both or neither or potted plants, he will give me what I need to live faithfully in either. So I didn't have to worry about where they came from or worry about changing them. I could just get into the business of seeking the spirit's power to say yes to Jesus and to know to things that ultimately are not for my good because they're not what he said. Now honestly, in your context, you've inherited a church where the church has screamed the word no at people that has not equipped you to understand your own sexuality or to help other people around you talk about sexuality. And so this positive vision even, it, it's not what the church has communicated. And I want you to know, um, that, that's a terrible inheritance that you have received. But I do believe that God can equip you, especially your generation, can equip you to carry a positive vision forward so that you can, in your own lives with holiness and as you speak to people who don't know the Lord, proclaim a better story about what God says about our bodies. And I know I've probably raised more questions this morning than I've answered, but I hope some of you will come back this afternoon. Um, and that you'll continue to think biblically and Christ-centeredly about this. So I'm, I'm gonna pray for us and then, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you that you loved us so much that you sent Christ to live and die for us and that we, by faith, can be hidden in you. We thank you so much that you don't love some future version of us where we're not messing up anymore. You, you look at us with a face of love right now. I pray that these students, you would draw near to them by your spirit, equip them with every good thing to know and trust that they have your favor, that they have your spirit, that you would give them the confidence and the vulnerability to confess their sins to each other, the confidence and the vulnerability to be a community of love and safety and righteousness. We pray you would do this by your power. In Christ's name, amen.